Unlock the past and safeguard your memories with ScanMyPhotos.com. Here's our special promo code, GoDigital, to get a whopping up to 50% off your photo scanning order. Don't let your cherished moments fade away. Digitize them now with precision and care. Whether it's old slides, photos, or films, bring them into the digital age and relive those precious memories. This is an affiliate promotion, meaning we may earn a commission if you take advantage of this fantastic deal. Act fast, preserve your history, and save big with Go Digital at ScanMyPhotos.com. Hi, I'm Maureen Taylor, the photo detective. I really love family photographs, all of them. From the mystery images you find in shoeboxes and albums, to the pictures you snap with your digital devices. No mystery is too small. A simple question about an image can lead to new stories of your ancestors. This means you can count on me to help you identify the people in them, offer solutions for preserving and organizing them, and yes, even guide you in the various ways to gather and share picture stories with your relatives. My guest today is Matthew Pearl. Matthew Pearl is a very well-known New York Times bestselling author, so I'm really excited to have him here on The Photo Detective, but he has also just written a new book, or fairly new book. It's narrative nonfiction, and Matthew, before we jump into that, what an I like, thank you for being on The Photo Detective, and why don't you introduce yourself? Thank you for having me, Maureen. As you say, I am a writer, and I write in both fiction and nonfiction spaces. Most of my book writing career has been on the side of historical fiction because there's so much research involved in historical fiction, at least in the projects that I've worked on. That also led me pretty naturally toward nonfiction as well and writing more narrative nonfiction. So these days I also edit a magazine that I helped co-found called Truly Adventurous. And, and as the name suggests, those are true stories. Those are that's that's a nonfiction platform for narrative nonfiction. And that also dovetailed with working on my first narrative nonfiction book, which you mentioned, called The Taking of Jemima Boone. I have so many questions for you because writing nonfiction and fiction, I mean, most authors stick with one or the other. And I have friends who try to make the switch from nonfiction to fiction. They go, I can't do it. Or fiction writers want to go to nonfiction and they say, oh, no, 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 not my thing. But you are extremely prolific in both genres. And how does that work? I mean, how does that, how does that work for you? Do, you? do you like one more than the other? Yeah, it's a great question. I guess it's a, maybe I think it's a great question in part because I ask myself the same question pretty regularly. You know, I think this is maybe true of life, whatever you're working on, there are, there are things that look more attractive or appealing about working on a different type of material. I I guess it's a grass is greener kind of feeling. And that definitely rings true in my experience, as you're referring to with fiction writers and nonfiction writers, both in the sense that they look at each other and say, Hey, that looks, that looks like it might be more fun. 
but also there's also that other that flip side of it of the difficulty in going between those those two things. I think for me, I, I probably never made as much of a of a psychological firewall between those because for me, writing kind of crept into my life and became my career, I, I say by accident. So I never had sort of a preconceived idea of what a writer was or or what I would be if I were a writer or when I was a writer, right? Which I think can, if you do have those ideas, it probably would make it more intimidating to be jumping around to, to different type of writing. So I certainly have all kinds of self-doubts like we all do about my writing and about everything else but in this in the sense <laughs> don't, we, of, don't we all don't right, we all in the sense of sort of traveling between different uses of the same skill sets and I'm I think you could relate to this as well having used your skill sets in in so many different directions you know ho- hopefully that was always that has been and, and will be sort of a strength of mine which is that I that I don't have sort of a psychological block against trying that out well, good storytelling is key to both. Great point. And that's really that's really the key to it is that it's it's all how we tell a story, whether we're telling a, a nonfiction story. By the way, even these categories, if you really stop to think about them, which maybe we shouldn't because it could hurt your brain, can be confusing, right? Nonfiction, if you ever stop to break down that word, is a really weird word. It's, it, all it's saying is not fiction. Right. right. But it's not saying what it, it's not affirmatively saying what it is. And it's interesting. And you or your listeners might know certainly more than I do about this. I'm not an expert on it. But when I've traveled to other countries, one thing I've noticed is that nonfiction isn't a word. There's literally not a word that that is translated as nonfiction. It's very much it, my understanding is it's very much a word in the English language only, or at least that started in the English language. And it was really used again, my understanding of this. It was really created by libraries as a way simply to have different shelving, a different oh. shelving system for certain books, right? So in other countries, it's they have history as a category, they have biography as a category. But this idea of nonfiction as this kind of catch-all, separate category of the way we think, the way we write, the way we read is very much, uh, I don't know if it's, a, if it's American and British or it's just American, but it's a very idiosyncratic way of, of organizing our, ourselves that probably doesn't really reflect a lot in the actual writing. And, and that's all to say, to get back to what you said, is that when we kind of master the art of storytelling, or hope we master the art or, or get close to mastering there, I think that really can apply in, in lots of different formats. Yeah. Good point. I hadn't really thought about that. But yeah, it's weird, right? To think it what, is weird it because when I go yeah. to European bookstores, it is it doesn't say the nonfiction section. It actually is more specific, right? That. And and it's also interesting because you could think of genres or categories that we do use that have the word truth or true in them, right? True crime is is sort of the most obvious one, but we don't have. But that but you know I think a lot of people kind of make assumptions about nonfiction, and by the way, that can get some writers and readers in trouble, right? There have been memoirs. It's a whole different topic, probably. But memoirs that have been kind of caught in controversy because the memoirist, and I don't want to use names, has sort of merged their life experience with with kind of a fictional take or fictional use of details. And and then readers can get very, very upset by this. By the way, understandably, if the framework going in is. But I, I think a lot of that comes from that confusing sort of category or term. Plus, there's fictionalized history where someone starts out with here are the facts of a person's life 
And then they tell the story from there with it's it's sprinkled in with actual details. And it's interesting, again, maybe this is a detour, but when I think of the way we look at films that are about real people, we have the word biopic, for example, we don't hold them to a standard, like we're totally accepting, we kind of internalize the fact that all kinds of facts will be changed, right, within the course of that storytelling. And of course, we can't and don't do that when we write narrative nonfiction. But it's interesting that we that we don't. And, and for someone who's who's written a lot of historical fiction, maybe because I was coming at it from a different angle, one of the frustrations I had with that is that I often, I did so much research when I do work on historical fiction that I often felt like that got lost. And I think that's part of what pushed me to writing narrative nonfiction is that I have several examples in which I found material that I used in historical fiction that had never been found before, that never been published before, so that I was kind of in that format, introducing new information, new historical, but they would just completely get lost. because you couldn't include it. You have to cut things out. Well, even if you include it, you can't tell it, you can't tell what's historic, what's real, what's true, what's not. Again, these terms are can be so murky, but part of the, you know, there's so many more rules, obviously, in writing nonfiction, narrative nonfiction is is what I prefer, but the rules can also make it more challenging and more fun. Obviously, you can't write anything that you aren't actually finding material on. You can speculate as long as you're as long as you're clear that you're you're speculating, but it's a much more confined sort of system or ecosystem of writing. Well, and the skill set that you have for researching historical fiction and researching this piece of narrative nonfiction are basically the same. Yeah, that's what I came to find happily because it let me slide into writing narrative nonfiction is that once you really get a grip on how to do research, which by the way, as you know, as, as well as anyone, has changed so much over the last decade, 15 years, 20 years. It's so different now to research something from, from history than it would have been 25 years ago. And once you kind of feel confident in that, and, and by the way, hopefully enjoy it, enjoy research. Plenty of writers do not. Plenty of historical fiction writers do not. And that was a difference that I, that I noticed when I was writing sort of mostly or exclusively in historical fiction is that other writers I encountered were kind of filled with complaints about the research side. And I, I just love the research side. So it, it made it more natural for me to also be able to use that in other formats. Well, let's talk about your new book which came out in fall of 2021. Yeah, and the paperback is is just coming out now as we speak or just out now if any of your readers are interested in picking it up. And it's very exciting for me because it's my first narrative nonfiction book, not my first narrative nonfiction writing, but the first project that when I started working on it, I saw, hey, this could be a book. Well, um, long form, because yeah. on your digital magazine, Truly Adventurous, You've written all kinds of narrative nonfiction. Yeah, and that's right. Thank you for mentioning that. And and that's those are those are long articles, what we call long form articles, right? And it's such a, a great format to be able to tell a full story. And I hope some of your listeners will take a look at that as well. And in, in this case, what I saw was a story that that was rare because it it unfolded in so many surprising directions, which is not what usually happens in real life. Usually when you find an interesting story, it kind of hits a brick wall pretty quickly because that's what life is like. It doesn't use, but this actually really, I found kept taking shape the way I, the way I first encountered the story behind the taking of Jemima Boone 
was actually through one of the interests I have, which I'm always curious where stories in literature might have come from in sort of counterparts in real life, right? And one of the books that I looked at was The Last of the Mohicans by James Fenimore Cooper. And I found that he had an inspiration in this, what turned out to be the story that I wrote this book about, which is the kidnapping of Daniel Boone's daughter. And this happened in 1776, right around the time of the Declaration of Independence. So she's kidnapped a couple of weeks after that. This is in Kentucky, which is frontier territory, and a joint group of Shawnee and Cherokee American Indians take... Jemima and two of her friends, who are not her sister, but sisters with each other. And it launches this sort of search and rescue operation by Daniel Boone and his group and creates sort of a seismic chain reaction within the sort of relationships between the pioneers, the frontier people, and the American Indian tribes. And the story itself, that chain reaction kind of lasts about two years with sort of this incredible series of events that start with that kidnapping. Right. So what you're saying is you're interested in the truth in the fiction, that the storytelling, the oral tradition of here's what happened. James Fenimore Cooper hears it right? Here's the story about the kidnapping of Jemima Boone. Then he does a spinoff, sort of, of The Last of the Mohicans. But then you decide to look into what's the real story. And you discover, you discover, what did you go into it with an assumption or what you had heard? And then what did you find out that really changed your perspective on the whole thing? I'm always fascinated by what might inspire an author. And in this case, I became much more interested in the real story than I was actually in The Last of the Mohicans or James Fenimore Cooper, which was really just sort of the starting point for me, although those are both he and that book are are fascinating in all kinds of ways. But what I found was the true story was just filled with drama and tension and stakes and characters that were really worth discovering or rediscovering. And it just became a really fun project for me to sort of reconstruct the experiences of these people, and especially this young woman at the center. Jemima Boone was 13 years old when this happened. And often in when this event was depicted, she was depicted and her friends as kind of passive figures. And the American Indians were depicted as, you can imagine, as sort of villainous, evil others, right? The sort of threat to the settlers. And of course, as always, the reality is much more complicated and much more interesting and made for a really interesting writing project. How challenging was the research? It was particularly challenging on the American Indian side because the sort of documentation is not the same kind that we often look for, right? There's not so much a tradition of writing history. It's more storytelling and passing those traditions along. So it required a lot of different approaches to the research. And some of what was most valuable from the American Indian side was accounts that were recorded by non- Indian sort of observers, right? So missionaries would often travel around and they would interview American Indians about their experience and write down transcripts of what they said. There were also a fair number of Indian figures who testified to sort of government 
agencies for a variety of reasons who would often recount events and events related to the Revolutionary War, which was going on at the time. So as always with the research project, and as you know, you have to be sort of flexible with what your methods will be depending on sort of where the material might be hiding. And did you come out of this whole process with new perspective on Jemima and who she was? I did. Yeah. I think what was really impressive was just how much she tried to maintain a very balanced sort of perspective on the conflicts between the tribes and the settlers, very much like her father, Daniel Boone. I think we often think or were taught that there was this sort of one side versus the other kind of structure to the frontier, when in fact there were American Indians that lived in the settlements where families like the Boones were living. They had neighbors and friends who were Indians. Part of my story in The Taking of Jemima Boone is Daniel Boone getting kidnapped as well and living with and being adopted by a tribal family and growing to love them, and also knowing that he had to hide that fact from settlers who were bent on seeing the tribes as enemies. So that much more complicated perspective was really a a surprise and made for much uh, a much better story and many more dimensions to the story. And the real villains, if there were, or antagonists for the Boone family turn out to be fellow settlers who are trying to wrest control and power that the Boone family had, and Jemima becomes a key figure in trying to to stop that from happening. And for anyone that does read the book, you have extensive endnotes. It's an interesting tale. It's one I wasn't familiar with. Yeah, and what's one of the nice things has been to hear from descendants of the Boone family who have read the book together. And I've had some Zoom calls with groups of those descendants to answer questions and discuss it with them and and to hear how much they were learning from reading the book. And, you know, I think you know better than anyone, there's so much overlap between sort of genealogists and genealogy and families and descendants and, and the way history gets built and the way we can rediscover history. It's always one of my first go-to questions to myself when I'm researching a project is, can I find family? Can I find descendants? Because the family knowledge, the family history, even if it can't be verified, is always such an interesting part of an interesting dimension to looking at a story. Well, not only that, but the stuff that people keep and that filters down from a historical moment to the present. I mean, Concord Museum, Concord, Massachusetts did an exhibit, a shot heard around the world, right? Lexington and Concord. Mm -hmm. And in the exhibit, they had a door and the door was key to April 19th. And the family had kept the door for like 200 years. That's amazing. And I think that was something also when I visited Kentucky and got to see some of the artifacts that were in the settlement where the Boone family lived and where these events unfolded. And it really does sort of change the way you interface with the history and the work of archaeologists too. Yeah. In digging these things up and and analyzing them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a richer history if we all work together. Definitely. Definitely. That's, that's been one of the changes is as we get to communicate so much easier with each other in different fields and spaces, it makes, I think for better storytelling too, because you can draw all those aspects in. 
So did anyone in the Boone family have anything that had belonged to her? It's a great question. I don't know that I ran across anyone who had something that belonged to Jemima, although her house later in life is still there in Missouri, or at least a recreation. I hadn't been to Missouri where it's located, but there is sort of a Jemima and Flanders Callaway, that's her married name, house that I think preserves some of the items. One of the interesting things circling back to where we started is that she was still alive when The Last of the Mohicans was published and clearly based on her kidnapping only for one year. There was only sort of a one-year overlap between when the book was published and when she passed away. But, you know, something that's sort of worth reminding ourselves is that two things. One, she couldn't read it because she was never taught to read. Women on the frontier were generally not taught to read. And number two, ironically enough, James Fenmore Cooper, in his introduction to the novel, says, hey, I hope everyone enjoys this book, but women should not read this. This is too intense for for women to read. So ultimately, she's sort of locked out of the sort of dramatization or novelization of her own experiences. And that's part of why it felt important to bring her story, and as as well as everyone else involved in the real events, into sort of a new narrative format and one that's easily accessible to anyone and doesn't need any sort of previous knowledge of the frontier. Locked out of her own story. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. So as we mentioned, you are incredibly prolific. You have several books, including probably people know you best for the Dante Club, but you also write a lot of narrative nonfiction on Truly Adventurous, all different topics. Yeah, and d- definitely want to clarify, it's not just me writing. We have a platform of writers from all around the world. But yes, thank you for mentioning that. We publish incredible true stories, on, as you say, on all different topics. And we always invite readers to check those out at, at Truly Adventurous. I'm pretty busy helping to oversee and edit the slate of wonderful true stories that we put out every three to four weeks at Ventures. Which is free. Which is free for free. anyone to read. And there's an, an email newsletter to sign up for. And we ping you when there's a new story. And really, they range from period stories. For instance, uh, we have a story called Pillars of Fire about the first female police officer that was in the United States or one of the first, obviously, like a lot of these things, it's hard to pinpoint one person. But And that was in 1909 in Los Angeles. And our newest story that just is coming out tomorrow is called Karaoke Man. And it's about a young Latino man in the 1980s who teams up with a Japanese restaurant tour to try to introduce karaoke for the first time to the United States. So they go on a road trip trying to convince owners of honky-tonk bars to put this weird machine that is with something called karaoke in it. And and people are looking at them like they're crazy. And just when they're making progress at the end, the big companies like Panasonic swoop in and actually succeed in introducing it. But our story is really about the the sort of self-discovery of the young man who's trying to sell karaoke. And then for me, my, for, on my book side, I'm just exploring what, what I might write next and typical me, I'm working both on a potential fiction project and on a potential narrative nonfiction book. So there we go. I'm always sort of pulling myself in the two directions. Well, that was my question. Were you going to give up fiction for narrative nonfiction or were you going to give up, give up narrative nonfiction and go back to fiction? But as you say, you're trying to see which project is going to go forward. Yeah, I hope there's a world in which I can still do both. But there's various reasons in the book world, especially why writer, first of all, they might just want to stay in one lane, but they do like exploring all different ways of telling a story and different types of stories. And as long as folks let me do that, I'll probably keep trying to do that. I think we're going to let you do that. You're a good storyteller, Matthew. (laughs) Thank you. 
Thank you so much for being on The Photo Detective. Thanks for having me, Maureen. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media, leave me a rating and a review. And if you know of a friend or family member who's also interested in family photographs, share this episode with them too. See you next time. I'm thrilled to be offering something new. Photo Investigations. These collaborative one-on-one sessions look at your family photos. You and I meet to discuss your mystery images and find out how each clue and hint might contribute to your family history. And trust me, these images can reveal so much in your research. I have decades of experience in the photo, genealogy, and history industries. This is your chance to learn from me and discover the stories in your family images. You can find out more by going to MaureenTaylor.com and clicking on Family Photo Investigations.